Hey everybody, it's Real Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week we'll discuss something new or interesting in the serial killer world. Then we'll discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer and go deep into their childhood, lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then, because most serial killer fans love a little spook, Brian will lead us down the road of the paranormal into something that he found to be particularly creepy this week. Uh, For the first week of March, we are officially done with the Lovers Weeks. Yay! No Uh, more terrible children's stories! No less terrible children's stories! (laughs) (laughs) Yay! Uh, just but more murder got it i did decide that what i would be doing this month in march is kind of spreading my wings a little bit as an american i do have a tendency to fixate on american serial killers and it's not for i mean it's for good reason there are over three thousand serial killers in the from the united states since 1900 yeah. so i have a lot of sources to work with but there have been a lot of fans via the tiktok and social media who've asked for people from their countries and so this week i'm going to be discussing uh pretty much Australia's most prolific serial killer, Ivan Malat, responsible for the backpack murders. Yeah, uh, he's also a little more recent. He's uh, late, he's 80s or so. Well, it's better than like me picking people from like 1912 for the first month we did podcasts. Look, hey, people got to know about these backstories about all all these past people. I just inadvertently the whole like January. Yeah. (laughs) My first four people were all people who killed within like the first 30 years of the 20th century. And so I've been slowly moving more towards the 21st century as I've been going. There you go. But before we even get into... Ivan Malat, something popped up on uh, Reddit's serial killer forum. Of course, when you're an avid serial killer fan, you're you're reading everything. And they discussed, they brought up serial killers who were influenced or inspired by other serial killers. And more than once since I've created the TikTok and since we've started this, people have said to us, you know, you're part of the problem. You're making these people... Uh, giving them attention you're glorifying serial you're, killers exactly so and when we were watching the ramirez documentary mm. richard ramirez was inspired by the hillside strangler or not necessarily inspired by him but he really liked him and like he was fanboying over the hillside yeah. strangler he was fanboying over the fact that he got to be in the same cell and he also really liked that one of his police detectives caught the hillside strangler yeah 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 so I started thinking, like, how many others exactly have this list? And so they started pulling up a bunch on Reddit. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, John Wayne Gacy was a fan of Dean Coral. And if you are a fan of the TikTok, you'll know that that's one of the most popular videos from my states because people in Texas were just very hype about this guy. I, I think it was because everyone in Texas was without power. I mean, yeah, it's Texas. I mean, but no, come on. That's not why. He, I mean, that, that they, could be part of the problem. Like, that's, that video got so many views and there were, there were thousands of comments. Uh, but he's considered to be the candy man. Uh, he didn't actually lure children with candy, but that's something the media really fed into. No, he just poisoned kids with candy. No. <laughs> he actually like started <laughs> like he started like grooming them by giving them candy. And then when they got older, he like gave them like drugs and alcohol and See? stuff. And then he murdered them. Mainly when they were like teenagers, middle school or age. Mm. But some of those relationships he did start when they were relatively young. Uh, but they called him the candy man because he worked in a candy factory. 
I mean, it makes sense. I mean, yeah. they call me. They would call me the Blood Man then. Oh the no, what vampire a weird dude. Name. But yeah, so John Wayne Gacy apparently was fixated on Dean Coral, um, the New York Zodiac Killer. Uh, Heriberto Sita was fascinated by the Zodiac Killer from California in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis Rader was a big fan of Harvey Glattman, a serial killer who he read about in detective magazines that liked to bind women. And so I'm like, well, BTK killer was into binding women. So I'm like, is this where his fixation started? Are we a part of this? I mean, I mean, so people, I mean, I don't know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, it's. I think it's really interesting. There's a. There's obviously a sort of different kind of people. Like it's. It's intriguing to me that when it comes to the fan base, mm-hmm. as of today on TikTok, I have 145,000 followers. Ooh. I don't entirely know the percentage of those people who are watching and taking notes, <laughs> and like- the people who are watching. For the same reason that I am, because of a, a weird sort of fascination <clears throat> with people's minds. So you think some people are just like, hmm, this looks interesting. This gives me some hints onto what I should and shouldn't do. You never know. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so interesting thinking that some of these people who are committing these crimes are just as big a fan of true crime and serial killers as you or I. That, I mean, that's true. I mean, everybody has to have their, their hobbies and their fixations and their fascinations. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess so. I just, you know, there's so many. And that's a... Israel Keys, uh, you know, he was called mm-hmm. Alaska. He liked Ted Bundy. He liked H.H. H. Holmes. We, we talked about H.H. H. Holmes on like the second, ep- third episode. Yeah. Yeah, Israel Keys. He was the one that had the murder boxes, right? He, remember he kids? like... He kidnapped that girl, and then he took a picture of her after she was dead and sent it to her family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, he started yeah. using her cards while driving all yeah. over America. Yeah, that's, yeah, he had kill kits mm-hmm. set up for that. Yeah, and he like sewed her eye. He yeah, he sewed her eyes open yeah. so that he could take that photo, mm-hmm. even though that didn't help him at all. Right. They still knew something was wrong. I can't imagine why. The- but he was also he actually expressed disappointment when Dennis Rader got caught. Is <laughs> and that's he, just so has, interesting. He has no room to talk. He's oh my god. Uh, he was like, "Wow, I can't believe he got caught after 14 years." And I'm just how long did it take for you to get caught, sir? Like a couple months. Okay, okay, <laughs> shut up. Well, at least after the last one, it got he got caught pretty quickly after the last one. Um, I mean, we know that the chessboard killer uh, Pushushkin was obsessed with Chikatilo from oh, Russia because uh, that was the most yes. prolific serial killer in Russia. So. Though they had completely different methodologies, but well, I and I'm, if you're listening and you're a fan from Russia, I am going to talk about a Russian serial killer this month. But I got to work my way up to it because I find your cities very intimidating to try and say. <laughs> but she, I'm working up to it. She's making sure that she can. Say it might it be correctly. the end of March, but I'm letting you know I'm gonna do it. <laughs> right, right, right. But yeah, that just made oh. me really think. Uh, Oh, fun fact! Whenever you brought up Israel Keys in, in the picture of the the girl, yeah, did you know that back in whatever year that they would um like take pictures of corpses, like dead oh people, yeah, way back in the back. members, yeah. Well, yeah, because and, it was so expensive. This I learned because remember I went to school for photography. Mm. Uh, 
it was so expensive because they used real silver uh, to develop the photos. Oh, that yeah, yeah, yeah. sometime the only time you got a picture with your whole family was when they was when dead. they died. Yeah, so you people had to get donated one. money and stuff. So they were like, and also it also took so unbelievably long for a photo to oh yeah be developed and stuff to develop that the only way you were going to get people to sit still is if, if they, they were, were dead, dead. yeah i saw like i saw of course you know i was looking up interesting facts and stuff oh right and, for your tiktok and, about weird like creepy facts yeah, yeah, yeah and i saw this picture and like so it was a picture of like uh a parent the parents and their daughter in the middle the only person that was still in the picture mm-hmm. was the daughter. Like it was like, oh my god, because the parents were moving. Well, speaking of fun paranormal stuff, a lot of early ghost photos yeah. were done that way. This is true. With essentially, they would take a picture of something, something mundane, and then they would have someone randomly run through the frame about an hour later. Yeah, some some fake spirit photography. You know, like a PA personal assistant <laughs> to the yeah. photographer oh just running through the frame in like a weird, you know, gauche gown. Yes. I love Oh man, I part of one of my interesting things that I love is uh just scams. Like I think you, I think I remember you mentioning to me that you wanted to talk about uh, Houdini like fra- at some point. Yes, I did. And I love how much Harry Houdini hated psychics, and I cannot wait <laughs> for us to have this conversation on this podcast. Oh my god! He, because that in the back in the day, like it was so scammy. Like it's still scammy now, especially on like Montel Williams TV show, like those things from like the nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sylvia was it Sylvia Brown? Sylvia Brown and those people, <clears throat> you know, Long Island Medium and things of that nature. And I don't propose to know everything about the the scene world, the overworld, or the underworld, right. if I'm really honest. But there definitely are a lot of scam artists in the, the medium realm. Oh yeah, definitely. Who have been taking advantage of People who are grieving for like a thousand years, and a, there is a history of this behavior. Who was I used to watch um, John Edwards, mm-hmm. like on t- like on, like it was like after school stuff. And the and thing stuff. that's so funny about <clears throat> those that we watched when we got home from school and stuff like that yeah. is that when you get tickets for some of those shows, you have to give information. Yeah. So he had all of the information about the entire audience. So he, Before he even got there. Exactly. So you knew all about you and you could just call to you without calling to you. Or there'd be a person who like is noticeably in the audience, like super already choked up. And you're like, oh, I'm, I'm sensing a loss over here. I'm sensing someone who's lost a loved one. Right. This lady's about to cry in the front of the audience. What are you talking about? She's sitting right in the front row. I don't I, I don't know where. Somewhere over here. Wait. Oh, uh, uh, I'm getting a, a D, a C. <laughs> oh gosh oh you should there's a john oliver episode about that and it covers like modern uh psychics and the he showed a clip of this one guy who was just being so rude and like the the second was like wow i'm just getting a lot of anger and aggression he goes he's talking about i believe your mother-in-law i'm I'm hearing bitch and like (laughs) people were like no that doesn't sound like her Maybe he didn't talk like that when he was alive, but he talks like that now. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, wow. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as he died, his soul persona changed up. How about that? Oh, goodness. 
Oh goodness! I don't know how we got to this, but we're going to move oh, on. <laughs> spare photography and fakeness right, and stuff like that. Yeah. There you go. But as I said, I'm going to be talking tonight about uh, the backpack killer of Australia, Ivan Malat, and he's going to be one of. Australia's worst serial killers to date. Uh, there is a movie that came out in 2005 called Wolf Creek, and it was inspired by these films. It actually did really well in the States, I believe. You said 2005? Mm-hmm. Oh, I probably... Eh, I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> that means I probably watched it, because you know me. I love a good, bad harm. Yeah. <laughs> but, like I said this week, talking about Australia's most prolific serial killer, or less prolific and more infamous... Mm. Serial killer. Ivan Milan. He only killed seven people, but seven is still quite a lot. Yeah. yeah. You kill one person, is still a lot. <laughs> that, well, I agree with that. <laughs> and uh, so Ivan Milan was born on December 27th, 1944 in Guilford, Australia. He was born to Stephen Milan, a Croatian immigrant, and to Margaret Piddleston, an Australian native. And he was five out of 14 children. That's still a lot. That's a lot of kids. <laughs> Never in my life would I ever dream of having that many kids. Yeah. The two married uh, when Margaret was 16. They first lived in Bosley Park before moving their family to Liverpool. Now, a family of that size obviously struggles financially. And the book Sins of the Brother by Les Kennedy and Mark Whitaker really reveals how bad things were. I think I mentioned to you when I was looking for this book to resource this. This book is like 500 pages long. Oh, right. And I was like, that, that's nothing to well, I was like, that's nothing to me. It's less about that. It's probably one of the larger serial killer books that I've come uh, And it's just about him, right? Yes. Okay. This is about him and his family. And so this is where a lot of the source material for today's episode came from. Um, I was not able to get an actual copy in the States because trying to order it in America is about $1,000. So I am going to get a copy, though, from Australia imported here. But I have to go through, like, Australia Amazon. Oh, goodness. Good luck uh, with that. But I was able to get, like, some chapters in PDF form. So I could at least get some of his background and information. So uh, the family mainly lived in cottages. And we're talking about dirt floors, sheds, decrepit houses, and really rural North South Wales. Ivan's father worked 10-hour shifts as a wharf laborer, and so he would leave early in the morning and arrive late at night taking these, like, two-hour-long train rides over to Sydney, to the coast, uh, to come, and then he would come back. So he was out of the house, like, 14 hours. 14 hours. God. He would come home, exhausted, uh, and then a couple years after that, uh, the family started a small garden, and they sold goods at local markets, and that became sort of a family business. Mm -hmm. But Stephen's work on the wharf was just physically demanding. It left him completely exhausted, grumpy, and particularly violent. One of Ivan's siblings, Boris, is has been one of the only siblings who have been openly talking to the press. And so there's a lot of different interviews that I watched from Boris. Um, and Boris really opened up about the horrible things that happened to him as a child. Um this horrible arguments between his parents. His father was a heavy drinker. Considering that at one point they lived in a shed, there was almost never an escape from the constant arguing and physical violence that the children saw their mother endure. Boris 
uh, recalls saying that he didn't go like a week without seeing his mother get hit by his father. Wow. Yeah. <sighs> and of course, the violence didn't just come from the dad. Uh, Margaret was also physically violent with the children. Uh, she once cut Boris with a knife out of anger. He doesn't remember why, he says, but he does still have the scar. and He showed it on TV. Right. Um, another time he got hit so hard with a tomato steak from the garden that it broke his arm. So the police were a regular occurrence. Right, No right. matter where <clears throat> they lived. And I did mention that there were 14 children. Mm-hmm. Ten of them were boys. Oh, so they're oh, they're a rowdy bunch. <laughs> all exposed to violence by their parents oh, and goodness. also to each other. A rowdy bunch. Um, they grew up with knives and guns as toys and were encouraged to play shooting games in the backyard. And this was their normal life growing oh, up. Not me. My mom would not let us have guns for toys at all. <laughs> I understand. At where I work now, the kids aren't allowed to even play pretend guns because of school shootings and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole new era. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But in the 1940s and 50s, hey, <laughs> everything just kind of was okay. But I would say with that information, it's not particularly surprising that Ivan got into criminal trouble at a young age. All of the boys did. Um, Ivan was the only one, though, who displayed antisocial behavior. And it really began to present itself at about 10 years old. He very clearly enjoyed hurting his siblings and giving pain to people. Uh, Boris said that he overheard him boasting to his friends that he would go out at night and get into trouble. And that one time he cut a dog in half with a machete. Oh, my God. That was when he was 12. What? Uh, Boris is actually quoted as saying, he was going to kill somebody from the age of 10. It was built into him. He had a different psyche. He's a psychopath, and it manifested itself with, I can do anything. I can do anything. I knew he was a one-way trip. I just, I knew that it was just a matter of how long. <sighs> so, well, this is one of those cases where this time it's not a surprise at all. Right. When yeah, things escalate. He saw it coming. So uh, when he's 13, he got put into a boy's home called Boys Town after an extensive amount of truancy. He just started skipping school. And that same way it works here in the States. Mm-hmm. If you miss a certain of days, they just go, uh, excuse me. Yeah. We're, uh, <laughs> hi. Where is your child? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it works very much the same way there. Um, and when he got out, he ended up dropping out of school at 15 because the family just needed money. Um, They were doing all sorts of odd jobs. A lot of the older children were. uh, And he didn't really get into any big trouble until he was 17. And that's when he got arrested for robbing a store. That landed him in a juvenile detention center. And he was there for 18 months. Then two months after he was released, he got arrested for driving a stolen vehicle. And they sentenced him to two years of hard labor. And it's now 1964. So... He is, because he got, that was 18 months at 17. Like, he's 21, and he's already spent, like, almost four years in jail. Nice. He, and as soon as he gets out, grand the photo. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, next three years, kind of, if he's, if he's doing illegal things, he's not getting caught for it. 
Okay. We'll lay that out there. I'm not going to say, judging by his pattern of behavior, I doubt he really ever stopped. Yeah, he's, he's doing something. You just don't know about right. it. Right. It's not until September of 1967 that he gets arrested again for theft and sentenced to three more years in prison. So, like I said, uh, again, we have another lull in crime from Ivan. Nothing seems to really happen until his sister dies in 1971 she dies in a car crash and it hits him pretty roughly um and then about two months later april 9th 1971 he hits the road in his falcon v8 not entirely sure what kind of car that looks like because i'm not really a car fan but he picks up two 18 year olds in liverpool who are trying to head to melbourne Mm -hmm. Apparently, both of these girls were prescribed Valium, and they dozed off while he was driving. Oh, nice. When they wake up, they're on a dirt road, and Ivan pulls out a knife and says he's going to have sex with both of them. He then says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill you. You won't scream when I cut my when I cut your throat, will you? Um, yeah, I'm, sir, I probably will. <sighs> it's going to be a thing that happens. I'm sorry. He ties them both up and he rapes the one girl in the front seat. Apparently, he decides he's going to wait for the second one because he decides to drive to a gas station and buy sodas for everybody. Oh, how kind of you, sir. And uh, that is the point where the two young women flee his Ob- car. Obviously. Smart, smart move. So uh, very quickly, he's apprehended for these uh, kidnapping slash rape and attempted murder. Mm-hmm. While he is awaiting trial, he participates in a string of robberies with several of his brothers, one including robbing a bank. Then he fakes his own death, a suicide, Bruh. and flees to New Zealand, where he hides for three years. Wait, 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 wait a second. Hold on. He needed money to get to New Zealand, so he had to get it somehow. Hold on. Wait a second. All right. So he's awaiting trial, Yes, though, he is. And he does this. Yes, he does. No. <laughs> How? What? Why? Are you a ballsy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, what this man has in spades is confidence and arrogance. Well, that chutzpah. We are going to see it in spades this evening. So he gets away for three years. He hides for three years. And then he tries to come back to Australia, where he is arrested immediately. Well, of course, uh, as he should be. (laughs) Well, mm, things happen here that aren't so good. Wait, what? (laughs) He gets acquitted of the robbery charge on day one of the trial. And then he manages to avoid the rape charge because the victim is an unreliable witness. And my problem is, it's been three years. She's not going to have the best memory of the situation. Yeah, and there are two of them. Yes. Regardless, there was evidence that he tied both of them up and threatened them with the knife. But that didn't really matter. And that case gets dismissed. That should matter, like, 100%. It should indeed matter. He moves on with his life. And in 1975, he moves in with his parents, who have now moved to a nicer home in the suburbs of Sydney called Guilford. He stops smoking and drinking. He takes a job as a long-distance trucker, and he's seen as being a very respectable and hardworking man. Oh, wait. You just mentioned a trucker. 
And I that, did indeed you, mention a trucker. The red flag just went up in my mind. You're right, because we have <laughs> talked at and in at length about how long distance truckers, at least in America, are one of the top like five jobs for serial killers because of their ability to travel long distances and they will pick up people in one location and drop off their bodies in entirely different states uh, in America. Okay. So we're going to get a crash course in how this actually works. Let's get it. <laughs> but for the next 20 years, he works on and off for the roads and traffic authority all over the state of New South Wales. During that time, he meets the woman who'd become his wife. And I only refer to her as Karen. Because that is what she is referred to in court documents. Mm. Because she has been in witness protection. Okay. So they do not list her 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 maiden name. None of that. She's just known as Karen Malott. Hmm. Uh, his daughter. He has. A, he did have a daughter with her. Ah, uh, sadly enough, she's still alive, <laughs> and she's kind of sad. Uh, but uh, Karen. He meets Karen. She was seventeen, and uh, she got pregnant by his cousin Mark. Wait. And they apparently met each other and liked each other. I'm guessing she and Mark weren't together anymore. So, okay, never mind. Okay. Listen, more than once when I was reading different things, testimony and other things, news articles from the different newspaper, people referred to this family as a hillbilly family. I was just like, okay, so so your <laughs> wife was with your future wife oh your future wife she was okay future wife 17 years old pregnant by your cousin mark your cousin mark but she got pregnant so was wait okay so wait she had two daughters then right or no uh she had a son that's jason okay so yeah she had a son and a and daughter. the son the daughter is actually ivan's daughter okay they have okay. later on that's what i was okay <laughs> uh and they begin saving money for a house um, she has the son jason he treats jason like it's his own child they also have their second daughter lanice and they get married in the mid-80s. He did not invite his family to the wedding because they were in the midst of a feud. His father had died from bowel cancer in the early 80s. And more upsetting for Ivan was the fact that his brother had gotten into a serious motorcycle accident and suffered a traumatic brain injury. Uh, the brothers are very, very close in ways that are not good. Uh, not in like a dirty way, but in okay. like a we're willing to lie for you way. Oh, okay. So, I mean, they've been partners in crime their entire life, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And so, I think that was one of his, his, that, that's deep bond that happened there. And we'll, what we'll find here is that a lot of Ivan Milot's crimes happen when he is going through some level of emotional turmoil. Huh. Now, what happens next is that. He starts working for the Department of Maine Roads. And while he's working there, he's gone for about four or more days at a time. This would be kind of the first time that his marriage is really tested. Uh, but another thing that really tested his marriage is that he was considered to be kind of a tightwad financially. Uh, and that's not unreasonable if you know anybody who was born in poverty. It's very hard to shake the thought process that... Even if you have money now, you mm. are afraid of when you won't have money. Yep. yep. <laughs> um, so that really took a toll on his marriage. And he began cheating on his wife with the first wife of his brother, Walter. Oh, very nice. Okay. He also started abusing Karen. 
And finally, on Valentine's Day, 1987, while uh, Ivan was away at work, Karen packed up the house and left, took all the furniture, and he didn't see his wife again until seven years later while she was in witness protection and provided evidence to help convict him. Ooh. But we will talk about that part later. By 1989, Ivan had quit his regular job working on the roads, and he had changed his name to avoid paying taxes as well as try not to pay Karen alimony oh my God. after their divorce was finalized. This is also the year that the first two hitchhikers, Deborah Everest and James Gibson, go missing. So before I get into uh, the different missing people who were murdered, I have to explain where this happened mm-hmm. because it's not like you know about it. Uh, so the city, it, the, the four, it's called... Belanglo State Forest, it's about two hours away from roughly like the center of Sydney, Australia. It is 3,800, is it hectares? Which is about 14.5 square miles for my American listeners. Okay. So it's, this is a pretty large forest. It's easily accessible from Australia's busiest trucking road called Hume Highway. It is a very popular place for people to go hiking and backpacking. Hmm. So back to our first two victims. Deborah Everest was 19, and so was her companion, James Gibson. They ha- were considered missing ever since they left Sydney to attend Confest on December 29th, 1989. Confest is an outdoor campout festival that's been going on in Australia since 1976. Sounds like my kind of place. I immediately thought that <laughs> as soon as I saw this. I was just like, wow, this sounds like exactly the thing you were just telling me that you love to go to. Uh-huh. And of course... Nobody could go to Confest or any other cons in 2020 because of COVID. But uh, it, and honestly, when I was looking up Confest, it kind of reminds me of Burning Man, but in the woods, and it's slightly less chaotic. Like there, there are different tents of things that people can do: yoga, learning about finance, all sorts of interesting things. Yeah, that's what Lost Lands is all about. And this, see, that sounded more interesting to me. It's the same thing. It's I don't know. Maybe I would want to go now. I don't it's, know. It's a dubstep Burning Man. Okay. See, maybe I'm not entirely uninterested in this now. <laughs> uh, but the next people who go missing are Simone. Uh, it, well, it's just one person, Simone Schmidl, uh, 21, she's from Germany. She's also last seen leaving Sydney for Melbourne on January 20th, 1991. Then a German couple, forgive me, Germany, Gabor Nogabauer and Anja Habsheed, 20 and 21, are last seen leaving a King's Cross hostel for the city of Medora on December 26, 1991. And then two British backpackers, Caroline Clark, and Joanne Walters are last seen in King's Cross on April 18th, 1992. Okay. As you can tell from the timeline here, December 29th, 1989, then there's a gap. But then from January and on, they get, it gets more, they get faster and faster. Yeah, so we're getting a, uh, where am I criminalized terminology when I need it? But there's an escalation that's happening here. And they're all reported as missing people until September 19th, 1992. Two people are jogging and discover a corpse that's been hidden. They report it to the police. And the next day, while out canvassing the area, the police find a second body about 30 meters, 98 feet, away from the first body. Hmm. 
These are the bodies of Clark and Walters, who are the last two to be killed. So they were the first to be found. Right. Walters was stabbed 14 times, four times in the chest, once in the neck, and nine times in the back. The stabbing in the neck would have been the one to paralyze her. Okay. But the other attacks are just excessive at that point. Clark was shot 10 times in the head at his burial site, and the police believe that she was used as target practice. Oh, my God. They sur- they thoroughly searched the area, but they do not find anyone else. So they just find this one person? They find two people. No, two, two bodies. They find so, these two bodies. Yeah, they find uh, they find Walters, and then they find Clark. Clark. Yeah. Next day. October 14th, 1993, a man is out camping in kind of a remote area. He's searching for firewood, and he comes across bones. When he returns with the police, they find two more bodies. These bodies are, the two extra are labeled as Gibson and Everest. Gibson is found curled up in the fetal position and stabbed eight times. The knife was large and it cut through his upper spine as well as it would have, where the placement would have punctured both his heart and his lugs. These were, these were all kill hits. Right, right. Everest had been beaten horribly even with just there being a skull Mm -hmm. her skull was cracked in two places her jaw was broken and there was even a knife mark in her forehead oh wow um she'd also been stabbed once in the back now finding the these two bodies actually confused the police for a little bit because gibson's camera was discovered shortly after he went missing after they went missing in 1989 and that was december 31st 1989 and then the his backpack was found march 13th 1990 on the side of the road in the northern Sydney suburbs. So. 75 miles away from the forest. Yeah. How, how did that happen? 120 kilometers. Personally, what I'm thinking here is that this was a drop. Especially because, remember, where does Ivan's family live? In the suburbs of Sydney. They live in the suburbs of Sydney in a city called Guilford. Yeah. So I'm thinking that Ivan dropped those things there specifically to try and lead people away from the actual location of where the murders and the bodies were buried. So wait, so okay, so they found but they found a backpack in a year after they found the... Well, about 3 months later. Okay. So they find okay, the camera okay. first and in then the same find area a... and then 3 months later they find the backpack. Okay. So in he... the same area, but that's still 120 kilometers from the forest. I want to just burn that stuff, not keep it, or just like leave it there so people but can we find forget, it. Serial killers like their trophies. Yeah, but he didn't keep it though. He just left it to the side of the road. Well, I think also <clears> too <throat> this allowed this kind of forced the police to look at a completely different area and sent them on a wild goose chase. That's probably what he was thinking. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, November first, nineteen ninety-three, a skeleton is found in a clearing near a fire trail during a police sweep. Um, just in case you don't know, fire trails are roads built specifically to be accessible during forest fires to allow emergency emergency personnel to get to certain areas. Places that have frequent forest fires or bush fires, as they're called in Australia, use this tool to help manage fires when they pop up. Mm-hmm. Very popular in California. They have a lot of fire trails. Same thing in Australia. Right. The body they find on November 1st is uh, Schmidl, and she has eight stab wounds. Two in her spine and others that would have punctured her heart and lungs too. The clothing, however, they find at this site isn't hers. It belongs to Habsheed. The police continue searching and three days later find Habsheed and 
Nuga Bauer. <laughs> I'm messing it up every time I say it. And that's November 4th, 1993. They're in, located in shallow graves, face down, with their hands behind their back. Habsheed had been decapitated, and despite an extensive search, her head was never found. Oh. Uh, Nuka Bauer was shot six times in the head. A oh, disturbing oh. fact <clears throat> about these remains is that there were signs that their deaths had not been quick. These were signs of obvious ex- escalation and increased rage with the last two as well. Mm-hmm. So I will. I do want to say something here. I like the police in Australia based on this case. <laughs> okay. So the first two are found and they do a big sweep. Nothing happened. You know, they're like, okay, we did our best. After the October 14th body is found, the police are like, okay, so this seems like a serial killer. And they immediately uh, put their hands together and they form Task Force Air. A group with over 20 detectives and analysts, and they begin trying to create a profile on the killer. They put out a $500,000 reward. They begin releasing public warnings, specifically to international backpackers. And they also start telling people, do not hitchhike on the Hume Highway. Right, right. <clears throat> this is probably where all these people were picked up. We're not entirely sure, but just to be careful. Right. Information lines are set up, and within 24 hours, they have 5,100 calls logged. And they immediately have just a serious pile of data to sort through. Eventually, more than 1 million tips are sent to the police, and they ended up following up on over 10,000 leads from those million calls. Wow. Because they were entering into this, this was almost like a cold case. Mm -hmm. Because all of these disappearances started, you know, years and years beforehand. So they kind of threw everything they had in terms of, like, forensic abilities and policing in the 80s and 90s at this case. They brought in a man by the name of Dr. Rod Milton. He was a forensic psychiatrist uh, who had consulted on previous serial killer cases. And he's the one who ultimately ends up giving them the profile. He immediately lets them know whoever this person is, they're very comfortable in this area. And these murders were planned out. This was not opportunistic in nature at all. Hmm. He noted that Caroline Clark was killed in a very cold and calculated fashion. Her clothing was used to cover her face as an attempt to depersonalize her, and she was shot first time while kneeling. In comparison, Joan Walter's murder indicated rage and almost an uncontrollable frenzy. Her clothes were in disarray. Things were pulled up, pulled down. It was Her underwear was cut off as if it were a trophy. Um, when the police asked him why they thought the killer had done this to Joan, he said that one was for pleasure. Uh-huh. Milton is the first one to potentially point out that this may have been done by a duo because of the differences in kills. Right. <clears throat> and, well, I'll also... Yeah. Because you get the one of them. Was, one of them is sexual, like a bit of a sexual sadist. Yeah, and the other, and one, the other just, one might just be killing for. Yeah, and you had the rage. Simple release. Yeah. yeah. Um. Also, the shots are a rage too, because if you want to end somebody, one shot to the face that's is you, sufficient. That's usually all you need. Ten times is excessive. Yeah. And generally indicates you that person's angry. Yeah. Now you're just wasting bullets. So uh, Dr. Milton gives them this list for the profile. He says, whoever 
this killer or killers are. They live on the outskirts of the city in a semi-rural area, employed in a semi-skilled job, probably outdoors, are involved in an unstable or unsatisfactory relationship, has a history of homosexuality or bisexual activity, has a history of aggression against authority, and would be in his mid-30s. That is the official profile that they go with. Uh, The only one that I wasn't able to find the information about is the history of homosexuality or bisexual activity. Right. Uh, That wasn't necessarily deemed, I think, an important aspect of people reporting on this case. Ivan Malat was only seeing dating women. So if he did have that or any of those desires as a bisexual man, he didn't release them. Right. Um, I like how they can profile ages. Well, at this point, we've researched so much. Honestly, the majority of serial killers are in their 30s. I mean, that makes sense. That's you know, like you're you and I are in that age range. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're you're in your, I guess, golden years now. <laughs> so you're you're well off in your 30s, I guess you could say. Back, what, back I then. think it's not so much well off. A lot of the people um, have focused like a lot of them, especially after the video that I posted on TikTok the other day talking about motivation, the majority of people who were committing serial killer crimes are doing it for um, pleasure. So a lot of them have been thinking about these fantasies for decades, like since they were children. Uh, and so after this prolonged amount of time, they feel the desire to act out. Mm-hmm. Okay. But moving on with what the police be, you begin using a computer system called NetMap. And that charts all of the connections between all of the information they're receiving. Names, addresses, what suspects they're coming in own, what kind of guns they own, what kind of vehicles, satellite photos from the times all the backpackers went missing. Um, The police were just aware that they had a lot of the facts and they thought they had the facts to find the killer. They just needed to find the link between it all. And that link was a man by the name of Paul Onion from Birmingham, England. When Paul was 24 years old, he'd been in Australia backpacking, and a man tried to rob him on Hume Highway. Convinced that he had a brush with the killer, he contacted the Australian High Commission, located in London on November 13, 1983, and they put him in touch with Task Force Air. He spoke over the phone with them and gave them details of the attack, a full description, He said he met the man named Bill on the highway on the way out of Castella on the way to Mildora. He said that they were less than a kilometer away from the forest and Bill pulled out a revolver and a rope and told him it was a robbery. Paul jumps out of the car, takes off running. He says that Bill pursued him and shot at him. He manages to flag down a passing driver. Her name was Joanne Barry. And then they got away as quickly as they could. Um, this, it would be five months before they he hears back from the task force. Oh, so at that point he thought that they were he had been completely ignored. Right, right. Back in Australia, though, Ivan's name is popping up all over the place. Reading through their many statements that they've been taking, they find something from Ivan's brother, Alex, and he had contacted a detective in October after the second set of remains were found. Alex said that 18 months prior to that, he thought he saw two women tied up in the back of two cars with a group of men near the Belanglo State Forest. 
The problem was when the police went to look into this, the details didn't match up. And Alex was just like, I said what I had to say then. Yeah. I don't have anything else to say. Yeah. So they just decided to cross this account off of the list. But he was, I, what he was trying to do was probably like draw them somewhere else or to somebody we'll see. else. We'll see. Another report comes out from the wife of a worker at a building materials plant who says that she was suspicious of a man her husband worked with. That tip was also made in October and referred to a man named Paul Miller, an alias for Richard Malott, Ivan's younger brother. Hmm. This was in reference to Richard telling people at work, there's more bodies out there. They haven't found the Germans yet. I know who killed the Germans. What the? What? Okay, yeah, no, that's not something you just say out of nowhere. So, yeah, I would just turn his ass in. That's a month before the three Germans are found. <sighs> He's also quoted as saying, stabbing a woman is like cutting a loaf of bread. How would you know, sir? Mm. How would you know? <laughs> and when he was brought in for questioning... He denies everything. Oh, you didn't say none of this? No, no cutting lady bread? Nothing like that? But as far as, de- you know, it's December 1993, uh, during this, just these couple of months between October and December, they narrow the list of suspects from 230 to 32. Oh, well, you're shortening their range. There so, you go. Yeah, absolutely. Around this time, the December, early January, the police began making discreet checks into Ivan Malat's work history. They're trying to get the dates he took vacations, days off, where he traveled for work, to see if any of that crossed with where the backpackers were picked up Mm -hmm. and if he was off for a certain amount of time where he could have had time to kill them. They approached his brother, Walter, while checking out Ivan's gun licenses because apparently that was a location where Ivan kept some of his weapons oh. at his brother's house. Oh, nice. Um, even though they were trying to be like quiet about this, <laughs> Ivan did realize that he was a person of interest and he started hiding his weapons in different spots in Walter's home. So Walter didn't know where the guns were by the time the police got there. Okay. By the end of January, they were solid on the fact that all of the backpackers were picked up while hitchhiking. Uh, they looked up attacks on travelers who had left the Liverpool area and this is when they notice Ivan Malat's acquittal for the 1971 rape and kidnapping of two hitchhikers. Uh-huh. So the dots are connecting. At this point, January 1984, he's the number one suspect. But it, all they have right now is circumstantial evidence. Right, right. It's not, yeah. So April 13th, um, from, from roughly January to April, they're just going through statements. They're reading all these documents, all this information that's coming through. And a detective sees a note about Paul Onion. And so he goes to look up the police report about it, but he can't find it. And so, thankfully, the constable who took the phone call had taken some notes. And they seek out Joanne Barry to confirm Paul Onion's okay, testimony. right. Um, They confirm with her, yes, she did pick up a man who was screaming and jumped in front of her car. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she is able to confirm that it was a four-door white car. The man had a mustache like the athlete Merv Hughes, who was popular during the time. Okay. (laughs) That's April, right? They fly Paul Onions to Australia on May 2nd. They take him. He takes them to the spot where Bill attacked him. They show him 13 mustached men, and he correctly chooses Ivan Malat. Oh, his name wasn't Bill. Imagine that. They bring in Malat's <laughs> ex-wife, 
And she confirms that they had been taking trips to a lake in the forest as far back as the 1980s. So what they have here is confirmation that he did attempt to murder and kidnap a man. Right. And also that he definitely has been in that forest before. Right. That's his regular stomping grounds. So they plan raids on seven properties owned by the Malat family. And they try to do these all at the same time so that nobody has a chance to run and hide things. Right, right. So first up, May 21st, they go to Queensland. They take a flight to Queensland and they re-interview Alex Malat and his wife, Joan. They try and make sense again of Alex's weird story about seeing these two women and a whole group of men. In two different cars. In two different cars. But <clears throat> Joan actually provides kind of the smoking gun here. She grabs a backpack that Ivan gave to her and he told her he didn't need it anymore. She gives it to the police. They do some testing and there's DNA evidence that it belonged to Simone Schmidl. Oh. Um, however, that... That doesn't even get figured out. So as they're going to all the different siblings, um, Ivan gets tipped off by one of his family members that the police have been to the house and are asking about a four-door silver car he used to own. Then at 2 a.m., his brother William calls and tells him that the cops came to him to ask about the car and the robberies that they committed in the 70s. At 6 p.m., the police call him on the phone and tell him, you need to come outside. Oh, Oh. He's like, this is a crank call, and he hangs up. They call two more times. After the third time, he and his girlfriend, her name is Shalinda Hughes, come out to find 50 armed police surrounding the home. Yeah, we were waiting for you. We weren't joking. They don't even take him to like a precinct. They begin interrogating him in the house. Oh, wow. Just for on the spot. three hours. But Ivan does not break. He gets arrested for armed robbery, using a revolver with intent to commit an indictable offense, and that's for his attack on Paul Onion on May 23rd. So that allows them to take him in and gives them full reign of the house. Nice. In his bedroom, they find 38 22 cartridges in a container, an electrical tape used by that at the crime scene, which means... All of the rounds that he used to shoot these people, all of the casings, mm -hmm. he, picked, he saved. He picked them up and saved them. He saved them in a container wow. and kept them in his bedroom. That's his trophy. There you go. That's one of his trophies. Oh, he has a lot of trophies. You're going to find out very oh my right God. now. No, just the bullets is fine. So one of the weapons that uh, was used was uh, a Ruger. Uh, it's a kind of rifle. And they don't find the actual rifle. But what they do find is a manual in the spare bedroom for using the rifle. Right. Okay. They find ammunition for it. They find a Bowie knife. That's in the uh, in the laundry room. They find uh, 32 Browning pistol ammunition and the pistol. Then inside of a wall, they find the trigger for the Ruger. Oh, okay. So it's there somewhere. In a cabinet, they find more gun parts. Two guns that Malat denies ever owning. How these guns get here then? They find a water bottle owned by Simone Schmidl, an Olympus camera owned by Caroline Clark, foreign coins from all of the victims. In the garage, there was a pillowcase containing five sash cords. One has DNA that was ultimately matched to Clark. 
There was a tent that belonged to Simone Schmidl, a homemade silencer. Malat also lived there with his sister, and in his sister's room, he stored sleeping bags that belonged to Everest and Schmidl. There was even a photo of Ivan's girlfriend wearing one of the, like, it's this green shirt that Caroline Clark had brought with her to Australia. So what was he trying to do with all this stuff? Just like take it to a- <laughs> I'm just really offended by the fact that he gave the shirt from his murder victim to his girlfriend so she could wear it. Of course he did. And he could see her wear it and probably kind of get high off of the murder. Yeah. Whenever she put it on. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. How grotesque. I- oh my God. As they begin doing searches on the rest of the family homes, they find even more of Ivan's trophies. What the heck? How much you take from these people? All of this was circumstantial, though. They had no evidence. Still, They still had no evidence proving he'd ever been in the forest. Mm-hmm. They kept returning to Alex Malat's bizarre story. That on Easter in 1992, he was driving past the forest. He saw two girls gagged and tied up in the back of, of two four-wheel vehicles. Alex gave... Very detailed descriptions of both the men and the guns they were carrying, even though they were driving in opposite directions. Hmm. Um, the friend he was with could only verify part of the story that like it was these white cars that passed them. So the police look into some of the information that he gave the first time and they realized that there is a parcel registration number that Alex gave them. And that links to a car that used to belong to Ivan. Oh, there you go. So what the police assume is that this was the way for Alex to kind of help them without feeling like he was abandoning his brother. He maintained throughout this whole thing. I told you the whole truth of what I saw exactly in the forest. Mm-hmm. They're like, All right, buddy. Thanks. They had a pattern. They had a connection to the car that they were looking for. And the timing of all of these attacks coincided with moments where he was either emotionally unstable, um, he was in the middle of a breakup, a relationship ended. Like there was even a situation where he attempted to kidnap two Asian women to assault them in 1984, and the two girls escaped into the forest and they just hid while he was stalking like the forest uh, looking for them. Uh, um, and that creepy. time slot fit exactly into a time period where he and his ex-wife were fighting and on a break. Mm. So like it was, it was as if he was taking it out. All yeah. These taking people. it out. So that might explain some of this rage that he's enacting on these victims. Uh, okay. That makes sense to how the, some of the bodies were found. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The evidence was sensational and it was international news, which kind of worried the prosecution here. The judge warned their jury. It had eight men and four women that the case was going to be emotional, confusing, confounding and contradictory later on he stated that in all of his 17 years as a judge he had never seen a case where the prosecution and defense stories were so different and uh, he said it was asked if at times they weren't talking about the same case hmm. while they were in the same courtroom hmm. now to explain to you this is, this is an extensive trial his committal hearing lasted from october 23rd to december 12th 1994 that is just the hearing to determine what evidence is admissible and what stuff's going to trial. And that took almost a month. There were 200 witnesses there. And uh, in a really annoying factor, the 1971 attempted rape is not admissible. They are not allowed to bring it up at court. Of course not. 
Um, but regardless, the official trial starts March 26, 1996, and it goes on for 18 weeks. The prosecution took 16 weeks of that time. There were 145 witnesses, including like almost all of the members of his family who were trying to provide alibis for the days that these attacks happened. Right. Obviously, I don't have enough time to go into major details about everything that happened because this was a four and a half month trial. (laughs) But I'm going to give you kind of there were two key witnesses that really hurt uh, the defense. And then, well, I'll get to that part. (laughs) So the first one was Karen. Um, At the time, she was 37 years old. Uh, She got on stand. She really looked at her ex-husband. And she recalled four different trips to the Belanglo State Forest with Ivan just in 1983 alone. On two occasions, he'd gone to shoot kangaroos. And he finished one off by cutting its throat. The other two times, they drove around. They had a picnic. Also, don't give me that look. Apparently, kangaroos are not seen as exotic in Australia. It's just normal. It's like deer in Pennsylvania. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. I was like, is it like deer hunting? Little, yes, it's like deer hunting, honestly. There are a lot of them, um, and some of them are beefy. We've seen those pictures. Yes, yes, we've seen those pictures. So hunting kangaroos in certain areas of Australia <laughs> is not seen as the worst thing in the world. I'm I mad you looked at my face. I absolutely moved. saw your face go, he was killing kangaroos? Oh my, I mean, he killed people, but kangaroos? He was killing kangaroos <laughs> on top of people? Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Um, she also mentioned that when they drove through the forest, he didn't need a map. So he was familiar enough with the area that he didn't need a map. Um, she was under witness protection at the time, which is why we don't know her user last name. Mm-hmm. She also discussed on the stand how adept he has always been with guns. And she was able to tell the court several of his aliases, one of which was Bargo Bill. Oh, there you go. There's Bill. Hey, There's Bill. Bill. And that brings us to the second witness, Paul Onion, who escaped in 1990. Who escaped from Bill. Yep. And the identification of him and those photographs helped to lead to Ivan's arrest. Mr. Onions is uh, he, Mr. Onion is now eight, 30 years old, and he tells this story to the courtroom about how he pulled a revolver on him while after he was hitchhiking. Uh, Malat says it was a robbery, but Onion saw rope sticking out of the bag. Oh. And so he says, it was just a bag with dirty colored rope. I saw the rope, and that scared me more than the gun. I undid my seatbelt and jumped straight out of the vehicle. He tried to flag down passing cars as uh, Malat is chasing him and firing at him. He said, I heard the gun go off. I just froze. And then I started dodging and weaving as best as I could. When no car stopped, Onion said he was about to give up when he felt Malat's hand on his shirt. Ooh. He struggled and managed to get away. And he said, once I broke free, I brought, I thought the next vehicle that I come to, I'm just going to stand in front of it. And if it yep. runs me over, oh, well. Yep. That's what I do too. But the young engineer is shocky. He's, he stopped a passing van. He jumps inside, locks the door. The people inside are going, get out, get out. No, drive, <laughs> and drive. And he's like, no, that guy has a gun. I am not getting out of this car. They shoot off and Onion had left all of his belongings in Malad's vehicle. But he said the last thing he remembered was seeing that stupid grin on the face of the man who just tried to shoot him. Uh. Now, the part that I laughed at when I said happens in the 13th week of the trial. Malat decides that he's going to be a witness. Bad. Bad. Not a good idea. Bad decision. He swears to tell the truth. The whole truth. This is surprising because there is a mountain of evidence against him. And 
mind you, there's been 12 weeks of witness testimony against him. But regardless, he decides, you know what? I don't mind. I can handle being cross-examined. Uh, no, you can't. <laughs> Gets up there wearing this dark blue suit, cool as a cucumber, asks, answers questions from his attorney, lies his ass off. Says he has no idea who any of those victims are. He's never seen Paul Onions in his life. He did admit to having 30,000 rounds of ammunition for rifles at his home, but he had no idea how the Ruger rifle parts were in his home. You'll remember, one of them was found inside of a wall. Yeah. So you hid him. You hid that. He still claims, directly uh, going against his wife's testimony, that he has never built, never been to Bell Anglo Park. Oh, yeah? I mean, State Forest. I oh, yeah? Park. Where all this kangaroo meat come from then? <laughs> he has no idea why so many of the items from the missing backpackers were in his family's home and his own home. But then the Crown Prosecutor, Mark Tedeschi, cross-examines. And I'm just going to read this direct quote from him because it's just a thing of beauty. Chef's kiss. Let's go. He says, so you asked the jury to accept that someone broke into your locked house despite the burglar alarm, planted a Ruger rifle bolt in the ceiling of your garage, dropped the weapons receiver in one of your boots in the hall cupboard, making sure both gun parts were painted in the same camouflage colors you use on all of your firearms, then left a single fired cartridge linked to the murder of Miss Caroline Clark in a plastic bag on the bed in a spare room. Malat only responded, they must have. Dude, no. This might be the lowest point for the defense here. You... And it really never recovers from this line of cross-examination. I would have warned her, like, no, do not get on the stand. Do not. If you're going to sink this case, you're going to jail, sir. So we get to the 18th week. Uh, Tedeschi makes the final statement. He says that Malat's incredible arrogance and unbelievable self-confidence led him to keep the victim's camping gear and parts of all of the murder weapons in his home. He says that Malat not only fits the physical description given by Onions, but that his four-wheel drive and revolver with copper-tipped bullets matches the traveler's testimony. Malat often visited uh, Lombardo's shops at Casala, which is where he offered the ride to Onion. Okay. Another quote, it is my submission there is only one person in the whole of Australia who matches all of these descriptions. The man, the car, the equipment, and the place. And that is the accused. Uh, He says, it's almost as though the accused left a fingerprint in the forest because of the incredible coincidence of all of the items being linked to him. Right. The only thing you were good at was hiding the bodies until people started finding them. And then Mm -hmm. we, we all linked them all back to you, buddy. In response, Ivan's attorney makes a strange assertion and he brought up a theory that has kind of stayed with this case ever since and all he says is it could have been any of the brothers honestly they were all raised in the same environment they were all hyper violent <laughs> and he just goes you know what's the difference he's like if somebody who did all of these heinous things would have no issue framing my client. Are you kidding because me? Because whoever did this is an evil, evil man. Yeah, your client. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure none of the brothers wanted to, like, they were all, like, you said they were partners in crime anyway. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't frame each well, other. It, on Saturday, July 27th, 1996, after a four-month trial and 20 hours of straight deliberation, the jury returns. 
the foreman stands up and reads out guilty on all charges. That's seven murders and attempted murder. Sorry, attempted kidnapping. Mm. Um, Mrs. Gillian Walters, the mother of the Welsh backpacker, Joan Walters, um, just cries in the audience. Um, Malant doesn't react. He... And uh, they immediately give a sentencing that he's going to spend life in prison. Right. Um, and not like American life of 30 years. This is natural life. No, oper- there's no parole, nothing like that. Good. <laughs> Your smile just now. <laughs> um, the whole nightmare for the grieving families and an outraged Australian public seems to be over. But... Um, there are some disturbing surprises to come in uh, when he gives the sentence. Uh, Justice Hunt states that Malat's callous indifference to the suffering of his victims is almost beyond belief. And he suggested that the backpackers that, that Malat got psychological gratification of attacking them. But then the judge states what police investigators and the families of the deceased and public feared the most. It is inevitable that the prisoner was not alone in this criminal enterprise. He, yeah, he may not have been. May not have been. Um, several of the victims' families agree with us. They were all happy that Ivan was in jail, but there's huge speculation that one of the brothers helped him. Um, but they don't know who. Yeah. And Ivan's not going to tell. See? They're all like his first day in prison. He's beaten by inmates at uh, the prison's called Matlin goal. He tried to escape in 1997 with another prisoner who was there for drugs. He also tried to appeal in 97, 2004, 2006 and 2011. All were rejected. Uh, he died in 2019 of esophageal cancer at 74 years old. Oh. He wrote to his family and told them not to pay for his funeral because he wanted the state to pay for it. <laughs> and then, um, the head of the prison told the Canberra Times that they would under no circumstance pay for a funeral. He was cremated and they took the money out of his prison account before they closed it oh, okay. to pay for his cremation. There you go. I'm going to end this story kind of with an interview that uh, I also watched from Boris. It happened shortly after the trial. He was in hiding, actually, and reporters just very good at their job tracked him down. And they asked him, do you think your brother is innocent? And Boris answered, all of my brothers are capable of extreme violence, given the right time and place individually. The things I can tell you are much worse than what Ivan's meant to have done. Everywhere he's worked, people have disappeared. I know where he's been. If Ivan's done these murders, I reckon he's done a hell of a lot more. Mm. They asked him, how many? And Boris responded, about 28. Oh, to date, Boris is the only member of the Malat family who has publicly denounced him, uh, something that has cost him his family and left a lot of Australians wondering if there are more bodies in the Bialanglo State Forest. Ooh. And that is where I am. Good story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, terrible, terrible tale. But yeah. Good um, I story knew who Ivan Malat was, but I didn't know like this. Weird bond. Like I said, the uh, like I said, the main book I was able to get some chapters from, but I would love to read up 
on the connection between all of the brothers. Right. Uh, yeah. The book is called uh, Sins of the Brother by Mark Whitaker and Les Kennedy. There's also another book called Back the, the Backpacker Murders. Um, and Jess, yeah, but I would really love to read Sins of the Brother. Like, that's... Uh, I want to know about this weird connection between his family and, and the bond that happened over all of them being abused. Yeah. That's really the key there. When Killers Get Caught is sponsored by the Magic Class Boutique. Now, why does that name sound so familiar? Well, it's because it's a business ran by our very own Brittany. That's right. The Magic Class Boutique is not only a black-owned business, it's a woman-owned as well. This is a jewelry company that makes some pretty awesome earrings, ranging from cute little sushis to spooky mermaid skeletons. There are even adorable self-defense keychains for those just-in-case moments. And introducing the Serial Collection. This set of earrings is based off of Serial Killers and the official merch for the podcast. This collection features everything a serial killer would need to pull off their crimes, from hunting knives at the beginning of their crimes to warding keys for when they eventually get caught. Check out themagicclasp.com today where you can use our promo code CAUGHT to receive 15% off of your online order. That's T-H-E-M-A-G-I-C-C-L-A-S-P dot com and use promo code CAUGHT for 15% off and make sure you tell Brittany that I sent you. Oh, goodness. But what are you going to talk to us about today, Brian? No killers, hopefully. Well, you know, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that's just, you know, that's my forte. Yes. Oh, goodness. Hold on a sec. All right. <laughs> so this week, we'll be headed out east. Not east of America. Crossing the ocean? We're crossing the ocean. All right. Mm-hmm. International spook. This is international. Um, So... Since Brittany's doing international, I want to do like a international story. And since it's officially Women's History Month, okay, I'll be talking about some interesting women in horror. Oh, I'm I'm here for this. All right, fantastic, great. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're going to Japan. Oh, oh, yes. Long, wonderful history of very creepy monsters. Yes, and so. lovely ghost stories. They have some very, very great, good, good tales there. Uh, I mean, not to mention the creation of anime. This we is... love you, Japan, for this. I love Japan for everything, okay? I feel you, I feel you. <laughs> After COVID, that's where we're going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, we're going to be taking a look at some of their urban legends. Ooh. Yeah, so according to Wiki, um, Japanese urban legends are stories in Japanese folklore, which are circulated as true so wait a second yes so when we talk about our urban legends it's seen as like we know this is fake but we love to talk about it anyway so in japan it's viewed as this is definitely happened absolutely so it's kind of like our no sleep but in real life absolutely okay it's they they really they believe this that this stuff will happen to you or yeah 
That changes so much for me. And it's great, right? I just love it. That's mind blown. Mind blown. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. So I'm not sure how many I could fit in here. Uh, I wrote down two, but let's see how how far we'll get because the first one's kind of a long one. Um, Well, I guess if you can't get through both, you'll have to do the next one next week. Yeah, there you go. But I'm going to try to get through this and see see how it goes. Okay. Okay. So first I'll be talking about, um, as part of the inspiration for a very popular, very tall, very beautiful vampire woman. No she's, way. She's, I, I wrote down vampire mommy, but <laughs> because, <laughs> shut up. I'm not going to say the word that has been on the internet for weeks now. Uh, but no way. For real? Yeah. Her... I didn't know. I thought that was completely from the minds of the Resident Evil people. And, but then yeah. again, they are from Japan, so this makes entirely lots yeah. of sense. So, yeah, this person has um, has got a lot of men and women wanting her to sit on their faces. All right. You know, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> Mommy milkers. That's what I've been seeing on the internet for like a month now. And you know what? I'm with it. Shush. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I bet you are. Yes, death by snoo 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 is one of my favorite <laughs> ways of dying. <laughs> I don't care who knows it. <laughs> no king shame is up. <laughs> oh, seriously though. <laughs> Just explaining lots of things about yes. our relationship right now. Shh. So let me <laughs> try to Oh goodness, yes. <laughs> Shush. So Lady <laughs> Dimitrescu is a is a tall and powerful woman okay. who should not be sexualized. All right. To, but she Even though that's what entirely what the internet has been doing for the last month. Yes, but she's she, like she's a powerful woman. But besides her I was like, can you say her name again? No. <laughs> I wanna know. Is Dimitrescu. Dimitrescu? Yes, Lady. Okay. Um, but yes. So anyway. I only asked you because you were laughing before. I know. I was trying to I was trying not to. I was trying to say it without laughing. Okay. So anyway, one of her inspirations was Hachishaku Sama. Mm-hmm. Um, translated as eight foot tall um woman. The direct translation is eight yeah. foot tall woman? It's, it's, yeah. All right, just yeah. getting straight to the point in Japan. Because she is an eight foot tall woman. There you go. Okay, so I'm going to keep saying her name because I like saying her name because it's nice and long. Demetrescu? No, <laughs> no. We're done talking about her. Oh, okay. I thought. Which one are we talking? Okay, say the name of the Hachishaku Sama. Oof. Okay, I'm not repeating that. Uh, she's an she's a Japanese urban legend, and that kidnaps children. Oh, so another tall person this week that likes to take children. Right, last week we were talking about Slendy, Slendy, and now we've moved on to Hachi Shakusama. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> okay, so some people they refer to her as the Japanese cousin of Slenderman, but I'm like, okay, but she's been around longer. But she existed first. Yeah, so don't compare her to Slenderman. Like, if anything, he's based off of her. Right, yeah. So don't disrespect her. Also, all. he's a creation of the minds of the internet. This is true as well. This person existed before we had the internet. Yeah. Which is interesting. So, 
if you hear Hachi Shakusama, you'll 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 think I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it's different. Her like her voice is a little different. Is it like a siren? No. No, it's not pleasing. No, it's not pleasing at, at all. But so if if you hear her screaming? No. Okay, so not scary. Not that kind of scary, but no. Okay. So if you see her in her true form, um you'll hear a masculine voice going po 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 po. That's terrible. It's horrible. I I see this beautiful tall lady and then I hear a man. This is <laughs> awful. So this is horrible. It's like just, just oh my god. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about it. I look out your window at the same time. Um, so she we're not looking out the window. Yeah. See, look at you. So she she wears a white dress and a white hat. A white, I guess we would call it like a sun hat or something. Okay. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think in the history of my life of knowing about creepy things from around the world if I've ever seen a picture of this before. Probably not. She's tall. She wears a white dress. She has long black hair. And a that sounds like big a lot. Hat. But the only difference is that it sounds like a lot of the Japanese, like scary women in there mm-hmm. in stories. Oh well, but if you if, you said she's tall, yes, that she, would be bigger than everyone else. She's eight foot tall. You've not seen? That's a picture of her. Mm-mm. No, nothing like that. Okay. Anyway. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um. Where was I at? Oh yeah. So she could change her appearance to a relative of the child that she's trying to. Oh, right. She's a child kidnapper just like Slendy. Yes. Or I've Does seen this. Does she eat them? I've seen this somewhere else that okay. she changed herself to a, another small child as well to like lure them away. Okay. Um, I'm not sure that she eats them per se. Mm-hmm. I know she's after them for something just like Slenderman. You don't know what happens right. to them. They just disappear one day. Okay. Um. So when she takes a liking to a child, they'll disappear within a few days of meeting her or the first day of meeting her. Like she, if you can get away from her for like a couple days, she, okay, this is where I'm going to. She don't stop. Oh no. She will not stop unless you like leave a certain, like leave a certain amount of like um, a distance away from her. Okay. Or like just leave Japan altogether. Or yeah. Well, at least we're safe. She only wants kiddos. <laughs> well, you're not safe. You got kiddos in your house. But if you're a child and she takes a liking to you as you're when you're a child, and that you and you have to happen to like get away from her for years and years and years, guess what? She'll still want you when you're an adult. Oh, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. So there how, is. How do you know that she took a liking to you? Oh, if you see her and you hear the po po po, <laughs> so oh. the po 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 means I like you, not I'm going to kill you. No, that means, I mean that's the same thing. <laughs> basically, <laughs> I like the, you and I'm going to kill you. Basically, it's the same thing. I like you, and I want you. <laughs> hey, I just met you, and this is crazy, but I'm going to stalk you until you're an adult. Yep. Okay, so there's a way to get rid of her. Um, get, you know, get rid of her for from your life. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get to that t- uh, later. So she was in. Okay, this is a little backstory of her Hachi Shakusama. Mm-hmm. Um, 
she was imprisoned in four small Jesus uh, statues. Oh. So do you know Jesus Jesus that Jesus statues are? I've seen that word before. Okay. Is so, it J I S O O? J I Z O. Oh, wrong word then. Just so, let me go into the the backstory of these Jesus statues. Okay. So I just want to see what they look like. Jesus or O Jesus son or Sama or statues. Um Oh, I've definitely seen these. Yeah. These are like in people's houses. It's like positive things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, they are. They're for positive uh, reasons. Um, so they're the little statues of little stone statues that resemble uh, children or Buddha-like figures. Mm-hmm. Um, they represent Jizo. Oh, oh, I did not look. <laughs> there you go, my famous slime. I did not look this up. Um, try to. I'm gonna butcher this. I'm sorry, Japan, but um, is Jizo Bosatsu? Bosatsu. That's what I'm going with. Um, and he's a divinity in Japanese Buddhism who protects children who have died before the parents. Um, next page. Do that. Turn the page. Yeah. If you lose your kids, you need someone to pray to. Yeah. Um, so the thought is, if a child dies um, before the parents, or just dies, they haven't gained enough good karma on earth yet. Right. So they're sent to a limbo type place called Sino Kawara. Kawara. Okay. Oh my goodness. It's a river. It's a river bank in the Sanzu River. Their children must uh, endlessly stack up piles of stones or pebbles to make a tower in order to, to atone for the suffering and pain their parents. Uh, have from them passing so often demons will come out of this river and knock over the stone towers so the kids are endlessly trying to keep rebuilding these that these these towers okay. of pebbles sounds like a terrible <clears throat> little purgatory yeah so you'll usually see a tower of stones next to one of these uh, jesus statues uh, to help shorten the kids time Right. So if you see it, if you see a little Jizo, um, if you're in Japan and you see some stones knocked over, pick them up. Help the kid out a little bit. So is that where <clears> the, <throat> the stacked stones thing comes from? Yeah. Okay. So we just took that in the West and started doing it. Is that for, is that over here too? Yeah. I've seen people just make little stack, like piles of stones. Oh yeah? Yeah. And they're just all over like the woods and stuff. And I always oh, wonder what might it was be. about. That might be. Ooh. We just took that from. We didn't even know what that was from. <laughs> I don't know because that's a real dark piece of lore. I'm not sure about that. Um, but the actual Jesus, um, instead of moving on to enlightenment, he chose to spend his eternity uh, helping lost souls of children going across the river. I guess he apparently I read that he would put them, hide them in his sleeves, so they'd be able to get across the river. Um. Now, one of these statues, I'm going back to Hachi Sakusama. Mm-hmm. Now, one of these statues was broken. So, there were four of them. So, one of them broke and it released her from her prison. So, I'm going to get into the story I found about Miss Hachi Sakusama. Mm-hmm. It's a very long story. So, that's why I'm like, I'm not sure how long I'm going to be able to get through this. All right. Get <clears> comfortable. Get comfy. Get ready for a nice long creep. All right. There you go. Hold on. Let me 
Let me let me let me wet my whistle real quick <laughs> before <laughs> I start reading. I don't want chapped lips when I'm reading. Important, important. Mm-hmm. Okay. My grandparents lived in Japan. Every summer, my parents would take me there on holidays to visit them. They lived in a small village, and they had a big backyard. I loved to play there during the summer. When we arrived, my grandparents always welcomed me with open arms. I was their only grandchild, so they spoiled me. The last time I saw them was in summer when I was eight years old. As usual, my parents booked a flight to Japan, and we drove from the airport to my grandparents' house. They were delighted to see me and had a lot of little presents to give me. My parents wanted to have some time by themselves, so a few days they took a trip to another part of Japan, um, leaving me in the care of my grandma and grandpa. One day, I was playing out in the backyard. My grandparents were inside the house. It was a hot summer's day, and I lay down on the grass to rest. I stared up at the clouds and enjoyed the feeling of the soft rays of the sun and a gentle breeze. Just as I was about to get up, I heard a strange sound. Po, 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 po. I didn't know what it was, and it was hard to figure out where it was coming from. It sounded almost like someone was making the noise themselves. As if they were just saying, po, 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 over and over again in a deep masculine voice. I was looking around, searching for the source of the noise, when I suddenly noticed something on top of the tall hedges that enclosed the backyard. It was a straw hat. It wasn't resting on the hedge. It was behind it. There was... That's where the sound was coming from. Po, 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 po. Then the hat began to move. As if someone was wearing it. The hat stopped at a, at, a, at a small gap in the hedge, and I could see a face peering through it. It was a woman, but the hedges were almost eight feet tall. I was surprised at how tall the woman was. I wondered if she was wearing stilts or some sort of huge high-heeled shoes. Then a split second later, she walked off, and the strange noise disappeared with her, fading into the distance. Bewildered. I got up and wandered back into my house. My grandparents were in the kitchen drinking tea. I sat down at the table, and after a while, I told my grandparents what I had seen. They weren't really paying attention to me until I mentioned the distinctive sound of the po, po, po. As soon as I said that, both of them suddenly froze. Grandma's eyes grew wide, and she covered her mouth with her hand. Grandpa's face became very serious, and he grabbed me by the arm. This is very important, he said, in an intense voice. You must tell us exactly how tall she was. As tall as the garden hedge, I replied, beginning to get scared. My grandfather bombarded me with questions. Where was she standing? When did this happen? What did you do? Did did she see you? I tried to answer all his questions as best as I could. He suddenly rushed out into the hallway and made a phone call. I couldn't hear what he was saying. I looked over at my grandma, and she was trembling. Grandpa came back, barging back into the room, and spoke to my grandmother. I've got to go out for a while, he said. You stay here with the child. Don't take your eyes off of him for a second. Oh. What's going on, Grandpa? I cried. He looked at me with a sad expression on his eye, in his eyes and said, You've been liked by Hachishaku-sama. Oh. 
With that, he hurried out, got into his truck, and drove off. I turned to my grandmother and cautiously asked, Who's that? Hachi Shakusama. Don't worry, she replied in a shaky voice. Grandpa will do something. There's no need for you to worry. As we sat nervously in the kitchen waiting for my grandfather to come back, she explained what had happened, what was happening. She told me there was a dangerous thing that was haunting the area. They called it Hachishakusama because of its height. In Japanese, Hachishakusama means eight foot tall. Okay. It takes on the appearance of an extremely tall woman, and it makes a sound like po, 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 in a deep male voice. It appears slightly different depending on who sees it. Some say it looks like a haggard old woman in a kimono, and others say it's a girl in a white funeral uh, shroud. Oh. One thing that never changes is its height and the sound it makes. A long time ago. I didn't even make the connection to a funeral shroud. <laughs> Duh. A long time ago, it was captured by monks, and they managed to confine it in a ruined building on the outskirts of the village. They trapped it in four small religious statues called Jesus. Mm-hmm. They that they place at the north, south, east, and west of the ruins, and it wasn't supposed to be able to move from there. Somehow, it managed to escape. The last time it appeared was 15 years ago. My grandmother was the was. My, my grandmother said that anyone who saw eight feet tall was destined to die within a few days. Uh. It all sounded so crazy. I wasn't sure what to believe. When grandpa came back, there was an old woman with him. She, inter- she introduced herself as Kason and handed me a small crumbled piece of parchment saying, Here, take this and hold it. Then she and grandpa went upstairs to do something. I was left alone in the kitchen with my grandmother again. I needed to go to the toilet. Granny followed me to the bathroom and wouldn't let me shut the door. Oh, this is serious. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was beginning to get really frightened by all this. After a while, Grandpa and Kay-san took me upstairs and brought me into my bedroom. The windows were covered in newspaper and lots of ancient runes that had been written on them. There were small bowls of salt in all four corners of the room and a small Buddha figure placed in the, at the center of the room on top of the wooden block uh, of top of a wooden box okay there was also a bright blue bucket what's the bucket for i asked that's for your peeing poo grandpa replied so you cannot leave that room <clears throat> oh so this is like okay okay yeah. Kason sat me down on a bed and said soon the sun will be setting so listen carefully you must stay in this room until tomorrow morning. You must not come out under any circumstances until 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. Your grandmother and your grandfather will not speak to you. Let read that. Your grandmother and your grandfather will not speak to you or call you until then. Remember, do not leave the room for any reason until then. I will let your parents know what's going on. <clears throat> okay. She spoke in such a grave tone that all I could do was quietly nod my head. You have to follow Kason's instruc- instructions to the leather, Grandpa told me, and never let go of the parchment she gave you. And if anything happens, pray to Buddha and make sure you lock the door when, you, when we leave. 
They walked down to the hallway, and after saying goodbye to them, I closed the bedroom door and locked it. I turned on the TV and, and cried. <laughs> I'm, I would just be in tears. I turned on the TV and tried to watch, but I was so nervous I felt sick to my stomach. Grandma had left some snacks and the rice balls for me, but I couldn't eat them. I felt like I was in prison. No, who has, you've just been told you're being stalked by a supernatural being. I have to hold this piece of paper all night? Yes. I have to pee in a bucket? (laughs) I don't want a rice ball. Oh my God. (laughs) You're the best. (laughs) Probably made some runes with blood all over the walls mm. and stuff. It's not blood. It's, That's I mean, a movie. That's a movie thing. Movies always do runes with blood. Yeah. Could just paint it on. It's probably simple. So, what is it? Um, I felt like I was in prison, and I was very depressed and scared. I laid down on the bed and waited before I knew it. I was asleep. When I woke up, it was just after 1 a.m. All of a sudden, I realized that something was tapping on the window. Tap, 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 tap. I felt the blood draining from my face, and my heart skipped a beat. I desperately tried to calm myself down, telling myself it was just the wind playing tricks or maybe the branches of a tree. I turned up the volume on the TV. <clears throat> I turned up the volume of the TV to drown out the tapping noise. Eventually, it stopped altogether. That was when I heard Grandpa calling me. Are you okay in there? He asked. If you're scared... You don't have to stay in there all alone. I can come in and keep you company. It's got, it's got like powers like the, oh. I smiled and rushed over to open the door, but then I stopped in my tracks. I had goosebumps all over my body. It sounded like Grandpa's voice, but somehow it was different. I couldn't tell what it was, but I just knew. What are you doing? Grandpa asked. You can open the door now. Why can't you open the door, Grandpa? I I glanced to my left and felt a chill, and a chill went down my spine. The salt in the bowls was starting to slowly turn turn black. What does that mean? Oh, oh, hold on. (laughs) I backed away from the door. My whole body was trembling with fear. I fell to my knees in front of the Buddha statue and clutched a piece of piece of parchment tightly in my hand. I started I started desperately praying for help. Please save me from Hachi Sakusama, I wailed. And then I heard the voice outside the door saying, Po, Po, Po. It's just all up in the house, no rules. <laughs> There's nothing that can stop her. It's just do what she wants. The tapping on the window started up again. I was over- overcome by fear, and I crouched there in front of the statue. Half crying, half praying for the rest of the night. There we go. This this makes sense now. <laughs> I felt like it would never end, but eventually it was morning. The salt in the bo- four bowls was pitch black. Oof. I checked my watch. It was 7.30 a.m. I cautiously, cautiously opened the door. Grandma and Kason were standing outside waiting for me. When she saw my face, Grandma burst into tears. I'm so glad you're still alive, she said. <laughs> <laughs> I went downstairs and was surprised to see my father and mother sitting in the kitchen. Grandpa came in and said, hurry up. We've got to get, we've got to get going. Oh, they went and bought tickets to get out. That's a good movie. I would have bought tickets to get out too. 
(laughs) (laughs) Gotta have one dad joke in the episode. That's all right. We went to the front door, and there was a a large black van waiting in the driveway. Several Several men from the village were standing around it, pointing at me and whispering, That's the boy. The van was a nine-seater, and they put me in the middle, surrounded by eight men. Kason was in the driver's seat. The man on my left looked down at me and said, You've got yourself in quite a spot of trouble. I know you're probably worried. Just keep your head down and your eyes shut. We can't see it, but you can. Don't open your eyes until we've got you out of here safely. Grandpa- he opens his eyes, doesn't he? Grandpa drove in front of my dad's car, and uh, Grandpa drove in front, and my dad's car was following behind. When everyone was ready, our little convoy started moving. We were going fairly slow, around 20 kilometers um, or maybe less. After a while, Kason said, this is where it gets hard, and started muttering a a prayer under her breath. That's when I heard the voice, Po, Po. Oh, I clutched the parchment Kason had given me tightly in my hand. I kept my head down, but I peeked outside. I saw the, a white dress fluttering in the breeze. It was moving alongside the van, along, along with the van. It was Hachishakusama. She was outside the window, but she was keeping pace with us. Oh. Then suddenly she bent down and peered into the van no, I gasped. The man beside me shouted, Close your eyes. I immediately shut my eyes as hard as I could and tightened my grip on the piece of parchment. Then the tapping began. Tap, 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 tap. The voice became louder. Po, 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 po. There was tapping on the windows all, along, all around us. All the men in the, in the van were startled on the... Uh, my goodness, hold on. All the men in the van were startled and on edge, muttering nervously to the sound to themselves. They couldn't see eight feet tall, and they couldn't hear her voice, but they could hear her tapping on the windows. Kason started praying louder and louder until she was almost shouting. The tension inside the van was unbearable. Mm-hmm. After a while, the tapping stopped and the voice disappeared. Kason looked back at us and said, I think we're safe now. All the men around me breathed, breathe, breathe, breath. I don't breathed, know. breathe. A sigh of relief. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the van pulled over to the side of the road, and the men got out. They transferred me to my dad's car. My mother had held me close, and tears were running down her cheeks. Grandpa and my father bowed to the men, and they went on their way. Kason came to the window and asked me to show her the piece of parchment she had given me. When I opened my hand, I saw that it had gone completely black, black. I think you will be okay now, she said. But just to be sure, hold on to this for a while. She handed me a new piece of parchment. After that, we drove straight to the airport and Grandpa saw us safely on the plane. When we took off, my parents breathed, breath breathed a, a sigh of relief. My father told me he had heard about eight feet tall before, years ago. His friend had been liked by her. The boy disappeared and was never seen again. 
My father said that there were other people who had been liked by her and lived to tell about it. They all had to leave Japan and settle down in foreign countries. They were never able to go back to their homeland. Mm. She always chooses children as their victims. They say it's because children are, de- are dependent on their parents and family members. This makes them easier to deceive when she poses as their relatives. He said the men in the van were all blood relatives of mine, and that's why they had been sitting all around me and why my father and grandpa had been driving in front and in back. It was all done to try and confuse Hachi Shakusama. It took a while to contact everybody and get them all together, so that was why I had to be confined in my room all night. He told me that one of the little Jesus statues the ones that were meant to keep her trapped, had been broken, and that's how she escaped. It gave me the chills. I was glad when we finally got back home. All this happened to me 10 years ago. I haven't seen my grandparents since then. I haven't been able to so much as set foot in the country. Afterwards, I would call them every few weeks and talk to them on the phone. Over the years, I tried to convince myself that it was an urban legend and everything that happened was just some elaborate prank. But sometimes, I'm not so sure. My grandfather died two years ago. When he was sick, he wouldn't allow me to visit him, and he left strict strict instructions in his will that I wasn't to attend his funeral. It was all very sad. My grandmother called a few days ago. She said that she had been diagnosed with cancer. She missed me terribly and wanted to see me one last time before she died. Are you sure, Grandma? I asked. Is it safe? It's been 10 years, she said. All that happened a long time ago. It's all forgotten. You're all grown up now. I'm sure there won't be a problem. But, but... Are the statues back up, Grandma? (laughs) Did you call the monks? What about Hachishaku-sama, I said. For a moment, there was silence on the other end of the phone. Grandma don't care about you at all. Then I heard a deep masculine voice saying, Po, 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 po. Oh. The end. <laughs> nice. Now, I found this story on um websites called Scary for Kids. That's hilarious. <laughs> I just like... um. Underneath the Japanese urban legends section. Um, cool. Yeah. And it doesn't have, I don't think it has a credit. No, just. Um, it doesn't help that this is like one of the windiest nights. I know, right? And the wind is literally shaking the windows. It's like someone's knocking it, tapping at your window. I know. Well, it's a good thing you didn't see a tall eight foot. Well, thank goodness woman, I'm right? up much higher than eight feet right now. This is true. I mean, she could float. Probably. <laughs> Look on your face. Float. We all float down here. So yeah, if you want to escape her clutches, there's basically a lot you have to do. Basically, you you're going to have to leave the country, but you also have to, I guess, I guess he didn't have to do a lot. He just had to like wait for people to help him leave the country. Well, apparently, so. you can just hang out in that room. Oh yeah, and you know, forever, right? Oh, While she tries to get you so out of there. So here's my question. Why can't we ruin up the whole house? Ruin up the toilet. 
ruin up the oh my God. hallways, ruin up the kitchen, just salt everywhere. Salt everywhere. Because that's how you get ants. Hmm? That's how you get ants. Do ants like salt? I don't know, but that's an archer thing. So. I thought ants like sugar. Yes. Ants like eating stuff. Anyway. I'm just saying, historically in spooky stuff, it's always about creating, putting salt places. Yeah, of Internationally, course. we've just that's, been that's doing That's everything. Salt. Everybody needs a circle yeah. of salt. So, salt circle. So we're just going to circle our house. Unless you practice voodoo and then there's other stuff you can use that's can be replaced with salt but we're not getting into that today um so there's a <laughs> damn, i didn't want to mention this but there's a manga i really really enjoy because it's it mixes um scary with funny mm-hmm. um and it's called oh i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher this um but it's I, I had it pronounced, and it's for you, uh, Tamisha, ta, Tai Mashi Reino. So it's about a high school that has, so their school is basically haunted by Seven Wonders. Mm-hmm. Now, this is um, Seven Wonders. Apparently, I've just found this out. This is like a, a thing. Mm-hmm. So there are like Seven Wonders in this high school, and... She's come to exercise ghosts that are okay. in his high school and around the area. And she's basically in, like this girl, her name is Raina, and she's a she is mm, she is abrasive. Okay. She's a, a very abrasive girl. <laughs> okay. And she meets you know, she teams up with other kids in her school to help her um exercise these. But there's a story in there. There's a chapter that um, I don't know if you follow me, if you have me on Facebook or not, but Brittany does. Um, I posted pictures of when I was reading it and I posted pictures of a girl who had very long arms and then in one panel and in the other panel she had very long legs. Do you remember, uh, me, do you remember me posting that? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, I might be able to pull up. But, um, so basically they followed the story that was just that I just read to you guys um of Hachi Shakusama mm-hmm. and not now stupid phone um and oh here it goes yeah so this is the one so in this story she lures a little boy away by pretending to be a little girl and they walk to his riverbed and he does some things that I guess you would say excite her. So when she sees these things, she goes po po. Every time she sees like him, like either bending over, he got wet by the water. Oh goodness! <laughs> um, Are you sure this isn't a hentai? It's not a hentai. All right. Um, it's not. It's really not. There's some fan service in there, but that's about it. Um, okay. <laughs> so. Now, this story, it follows the same, like I said, the same path as the story I just read. But the boy, he he escapes her because she loses interest in him. And this is a funny part. The reason why she loses interest in her is because the anime calls her a Shota. Now, Miss Brittany, do you know what a Shota is? Mm-mm. 
It's a person who likes little boys. Oh, gross. <laughs> or little children. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. So she wasn't interested anymore <laughs> in him because he had grown up. Oh, okay. Yeah, except in this story, she apparently decides she likes you forever. Yeah. And that's the main, that's that's the actual, like, official story. She likes you forever. Um, I think I can fit one more. Okay. The, the 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 powers that be say that I have more time. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't put that on me. I just wasn't sure. Did you have like five pages? Ten um, pages? Look, no. If I had more than five pages, I'd be like, oh no, no, we're going to end this right here. Okay, yeah. this is going to be another long episode, and I apologize because this is my fault. I did take like an entire like forty five minutes. Anybody, whatever, it's okay. Okay. Strangely enough, the longer the episodes, the more views they seem to be getting. Oh, so people whatever. Like Apparently, people, you like it. Here we go. Okay. So now, what would a Japanese urban legend be if there wasn't a small little ghost girl in it? It's the normal. Yeah. Um. So this is the story of Hanako-san. Um, a ghost girl that haunts toilets in Japanese schools. She's a bit like a morning myrtle, if you would. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, so her backstory is a little shaky. Um, one story says that she, during uh, World War II, her school was being attacked and bombed. So she hid into the bathroom. What? Just reminds me of a video game. Okay. Yeah, she hid into. Which means the game could have been made based off of this lore. There you go. She hid into a bathroom, and then that's where she eventually died. Mm -hmm. Or another one says that um, her parents were very abusive, and she ran away into the bathroom, and that's where she eventually died. Alrighty then. So either way, what is solid about this is that she hid into a bathroom stall, and she died there. Um, according to legend, if you go to the third stall in the girl's room, uh, bathroom on the third floor of your school um you'll be able to summon her now if you knock three times on her stall you can summon her by saying are you there hanako-san and if you hear a small girl saying yes i'm here you'll be able to open her door to her stall and greet it by a girl wearing a school uniform is not a, like a uh, not a, not modern mo not modern at all. So it's modern. She has a red skirt on. She has like a bob cut, mm -hmm. a bowl cut. Very typical of young Asian children. Yeah, and like her red skirt, she has this red suspenders with a skirt. Mm -hmm. Um. So there's one version of uh, like okay, so there are different like versions of the story, of course. Um, one says that once you summon her, that she'll. She, like you won't hear anything or another version says that she'll open the stall and drag you in there and kill you yeah i was trying to figure out what's the appeal here we just want to see a ghost like excuse me and but there there are other stories that say that she's harmless that she just wants to scare the like she literally wants to scare the shit out of you <laughs> Don't judge me. <laughs> okay. 
So I, I think the worst one I saw was that she she gave someone like a swirly. She stuck she stuck someone's head into the toilet. She's a ghost bully. Yeah. Um. So she's been known to scream, bang stall doors, whatever to scare someone. Uh, many children play this game of summoning her, just like when uh, you know you would do at a friend's sleepover house. Bloody and, Mary and summon Bloody Mary. Candyman. Yep. Yes. It's like a mini, like it's a an initiation right. Staying after school and doing it. Yeah, an initiation right, if you will. Um. So here you go back, and I'm talking about other stuff. Um, there's an anime <laughs> that stars. <laughs> oh my god, that stars her. Um, that came out last year. Oh wow. It's called Toilet Bound Hanako uh, Hanako Kun, and it's anime. Hanako is actually a boy, and he can grant you wishes, but he still goes. He's still like blah blah blah. But it takes something. But he takes something precious from you. Um, I I have to mention this. The art style is really really cute, okay. and I started watching it today. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm on episode like five of it, and I'm just like, oh, I'm stuck in it. It's really, I mean, it's it's entertaining. I found it in the slice of like slice of life section, mm-hmm. so I was like, oh, oh, interesting. Mm. Now, of course, there are ways to keep away, uh, keep Hanako away. So she's drawn to dirty toilets. So make sure you keep those bathrooms clean. Don't go to the bathroom alone. Always go with someone. Always go with a buddy. Absolutely. That's what we do at school. And she apparently doesn't attack students who are good in school, like who study, who have good grades. Oh, okay. Just do your work. You'll be all right. So keep those grades up. For our other 17 listeners, that's all you got to do. Yeah, there you go. Keep those grades up. So have you noticed that most of these Japanese uh, urban legends are just cautionary tales? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, Hachi Shakusama, stay close to your parents. Don't talk to strangers. And Hanako, uh, basically, do your chores, use the body system, and study hard, and she will go away. Mm. There you go. And that wasn't too much longer. And no, that's no. that's all I have from um, the land of Japan uh, for today. I might cover another one some other day. That sounds fun. Yeah, but um, since this is Women's History Month, I'm going to try to keep going with the women stories. Oh, see, I didn't even think about that. I could have focused on only women killers, but I decided I wanted to do international killers. Are there international women killers? There is, but someone was like, I've never seen anyone discuss a Nordic serial killer. And so I promised... My, it's also going to have horrible names for me to pronounce, but we're going to try our best. There you go. But I promise, I was like, you know what? I'm going to look and see if there are any Nordic serial killers that I can find enough information about to do like a good 40 minute segment on. There you go. That's the difficulty with this. You got to find a lot of source material to draw from. Yeah. I don't want to base it only off of one person's, you know, write up. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. I try not to as well. But yeah. So. That was our night. We uh, discussed Ivan Malat and his very weird connection with his siblings, as well as a need to murder hitchhikers. Yeah. Uh, we talked about whether we are part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still think, like, 
you're gonna get blamed anyway. Like, oh, absolutely. Like you have to. Like we don't have to report on this stuff. Like, but it's not solely like the reporters' parts either. Like, like if you look at the news, you I, see it in the news. Like, I think there's just a group like conscious discussion of honestly, as a as humans, we love to discuss that which we find to be grotesque and weird. And I mean, I do get that serial killers like they. Some of them do this for the attention, too. And well, apparently, according to the the study that I I used for a couple of my TikTok videos, it's from Radford University in 2016. uh, Very few actually do it only for attention. A lot. The majority of them are people who feel like a need to kill and they find enjoyment in it. Oh, the second highest one was financial. Oh, that makes sense. So. But that's frightening Yeah, that there's nearly a thousand people who've lived in this country who murdered people purely for sport. Mm, dangerous game. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I'd like to say thank you to anybody who has supported the podcast. So many more people have come to us. Also, thank you for supporting our sponsors. That's Anchor.fm, The Magic Clasp. Uh, and we're just always looking for more sponsors if you happen to be somebody who's interested. Oh, yeah, of course. Definitely. And, yeah, thank you, you can... for everybody that's been listening, all the new listeners. Yes. Thank you, guys. Um, and make sure, if you're listening to us on Apple, to rate and review if you like the podcast. Oh, absolutely. We would love to hear just, honestly, anything about what you think about it. I mean... uh, if there are people you want to hear us talk about or anything that you feel like other people haven't talked about yet. And you're like, hey, no one's brought this up. Leave us a voicemail. Anger.fm slash when killers get caught. Leave us a message. We will listen to it. Absolutely. And if it's something interesting, I'll credit you further down the line. <laughs> there you go. And then if you don't want to speak, uh, you can also send us an email at podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And that's it. Thanks once again for being a listener. And... I hope you have a spooky night. (laughs) Bye, guys.